Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host, Nancy Kerala. We are here to discuss C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and other related healthcare topics. Now, here is your host, Nancy Kerala. Welcome to C. diff spores and more. I'm your host, Nancy Kerala, here to welcome you to the ninth annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo, November 4th and 5th, 2021. Enjoy the episodes. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is developing a new class of antibiotics for infections caused by bacteria listed as priority pathogens by the WHO, CDC, and FDA. These include C. diff and a variety of gram-positive infections and their candidates. To view investor information, see case studies, news, and online media, visit acurexpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals is the audio sponsor of the 9th Annual International C. diff Conference and Health Expo. Visit acurxpharma.com. Acurex Pharmaceuticals. It's my distinct pleasure to introduce David Bischoff. David is the co-coordinator of the VHH program through the C. diff Foundation, a C. diff survivor, and he will provide his insights into being a caregiver for someone with C. difficile infection. David, Thank you so much for being here today. Good afternoon. I'm Dave Bischoff, and I've been asked to address the topic of C. diff from a typical caregiver's perspective. I was given the primary care during my wife's ordeal of eight occurrences over a two-and-a-half-year period. Now, thinking back, I would imagine the statistics of her survival would be somewhere between slim and none. We are grateful beyond words for being granted participation in the clinical trial that provided the cure. The most CGs, we'll call caregiver CG for brevity, are probably just ordinary people, few of which have had advanced degrees from prestigious universities on their walls, nor have vast strings of post-nominals to place after their name. Typically, CGs are thrust into their positions only after fate targets a loved one with a devastating C. diff infection. While largely being taken for granted, CGing is truly a critical vocation. It carries within it vast responsibilities and is a true cornerstone in the survival of the afflicted. Now, we can all agree that C. diff is a devastating and debilitating disease, which is responsible for brutally disrupting patients' lives and on way too many instances leading to death. In the normal operations of the real world, unavoidable inadequacies of time and limited resources are an unfortunate reality. And as such, there is a definite need to make more of an effort to join forces and to work more seriously with openly available and intensely valuable, but often under recognized caregiver resources. As marvelously skilled and motivated our amazing medical community is, it is a simple fact that a doctor's availability for direct personal interaction is a scarce, precious resource, which by necessity is usually dispensed in approximately 30-minute appointments wherein he completes his due diligence. The appointment is now oral the patient advised to schedule a two-week follow-up. the end of the busy day, medical facilities and staffs turn out the lights, lock the doors, and go home to their lives. We'll see it if patients also go home. 
but to a much different life, that of dealing with increasing pain, uncontrollable, devastating symptoms, doubts, fears, and insecurities. All that heaped on top of their normal daily stresses, and then left to sort it out and deal with it as best as they can. Their expanding needs for psychological, emotional, and physical support to cope with the ballooning chaos and stress load grow daily and with alarming speed. Ever increasing and often overwhelming medical and emotional traumas plus the drab but equally essential normal everyday life demands and responsibilities besiege them 24-7. It tends to overwhelm a C. diff sufferer's capabilities to cope. Here enters the caregiver, not to suggest CGs provide the perfect solution. However, until that need is totally eradicated, there can be no perfect answer. But until then, CGs are probably the most dedicated, available, and valuable source of this critical support function. Such invaluable source of aid, solace, and wide-ranging unconditional support is at minimum certainly a boon to the overall healing process and often a true life-saving component. The medical community would be well served to more recognize and capitalize on the inherent patient support benefit CGs provide 24-7 and explore and embrace any opportunities to more effectively expand and exploit the untapped potential for the benefit of their patients. CGs provide constant emotional and physical support. This is unendingly contribute to promote and maintain a sense of vital stability in the patient's everyday life. Perhaps even more importantly, provide invaluable moral support and aid in keeping the patient's wildly fluctuating hopes alive, while simultaneously helping to keep stress levels and associated chaotic fear levels in check. This falls pretty much squarely onto the CD's shoulders. To continually bolster the C. diff sufferer's spirits and will and keep doubt and depression at bay between doctor visits, a feat that becomes exponentially more difficult task as time goes on and symptoms persist, or even worse, multiply. Now our saga begins with an ER visit and a determination my wife needed hospitalization for diverticulitis. The nearest bed available during the 2014 flu outbreak was at a large major regional hospital about an hour and a half away. She was transported by ambulance, admitted, tested and treated for four days, and ultimately declared fit to be discharged by the staff gastrointelligence specialist. While waiting for the final discharge paperwork, the GI doctor stopped by for a very brief three to five minute discharge consult. He ended it casually saying, oh, by the way, today's lab show you now have C. diff. I've written a script and you can fill it at your local pharmacy. And with that, he disappeared out the door. Now, I remember it distinctly because as my wife and I quizzically looked at each other, I said, what the hell is C. diff? She replied, I don't know. I've never heard of it. Nothing was mentioned about it at the ER, nor at any time while I've been here. Must be something new. 
But we left for home, taking with us a newly acquired, devastating and potentially fatal disease, and absolutely no inkling of understanding of what C. diff is, what it does, or how our lives will soon come to be ruled by it. Soon our world, our very lives, would be defined into basically two states of existence. It was either a matter of dealing with an active management of a full-blown reoccurrence of, every of ever increasing magnitudes and severity, or the preparation for the next occurrence, which would appear like clockwork within two to three weeks of every just concluded and temporarily successful regime's failure. Every moment of our lives was haunted by the ominous specter of yet another C. diff reoccurrence rearing its head. Now, episodes one and two were bad, but my wife is a tough, resilient lady, and as a newly minted CG, I chipped in and we got through it. Number three and number four were terrible. The blinding pains and devastating accompanying symptoms were definitely, obviously taking a serious toll on her. And the totality of being a caregiver spontaneously exploded fully into my awareness and demanded to be taken seriously without delay. Five through eight, well, that could only be described as hell on earth. All symptoms and their accompanying excruciating pain episodes continued to escalate and increased by several orders of magnitude with each episode. Severe depression, drastic mood swings, previously non-existent belligerence and uncooperativeness unsurprisingly manifested in direct proportion to the increased suffering and with a vengeance. Support and management challenges constantly grew. The CG desperately strives to keep pace and do everything within their personal abilities and appropriate preview to mitigate the accessible circumstances inducing undue stresses impacting the patient's well-being and recovery. Well, such is the lot and willingly accepted duty of every caregiver. Now, I mention the above not to solicit either pity nor praise. Consider it rather a discussion based on first-hand experience and observations, strictly for the edification of and to hopefully somewhat aid in the process of expanding understandings of both fellow caregivers and the members of the professional medical community. Beyond doubt, medical choices and treatment modes and pharmacal intervention are the sole domain of and to be left to qualified medical professionals. However, the extensive demands of maintaining actual comfort and support needs mainly again falls 24-7 on the CG. Many long nights were spent hovering nearby to provide whatever aid and comfort possible to my wife who was frequently found to be in residence, curled up in the fetal position on the bathroom floor. Continuous involuntary sobbing while going through endless assaults of terrible pains, fearful of being more than a few inches from the toilet, yet often too weak to get to it due to the devastating diarrhea episodes. Said episodes occurred randomly and often with no warning, sometimes dozens of times each day. 
To further complicate things, she was concurrently dealing with being exceedingly weak due to multiple and simultaneous factors caused by insufficient nutrient intake, chronic nausea, dehydration, and a host of other common ailments associated with C. diff. Not infrequently, C. diff reduced to the such state of suffering that she was only intermittently aware of my CG presence. But after individual episodes eventually lessened, she frequently commented that the knowledge and assurance provided by on-site caregiver caring and support definitely made a positive impact in her ability to endure and combat the C. diff suffering. Severely ill patients don't cook, and for numerous reasons, often are reluctant to eat, period. Again, CG, as part of his duties, either utilizes existing culinary skills or adapts, uh, which in my case, such skills being nearly non-existent, but I have developed a relatively expert microwave technique. To the C. diff symptom of constant and excruciating painful spontaneous diarrhea and nausea, meals and nutrient intake was often a frequent tenuous affair, at minimum, often leading to a contested debate. Though as a CG, I always employ and utilize innate phenomenal abilities of tactful negotiation to bring forth fruitful conclusions to dietary disagreements. Then, when that frequently, totally, and spectacularly failed, resorted to time-tested and proven venues of begging and bullying. Uh, persistence is also found to be a valuable tactic. With ongoing experience, the caregiver hones the art and skills of adaptation and preparation to a razor's edge. Note, this is much, most often more a case of necessity than any sudden self-improvement compulsion. All outings were predicated on necessarily required planning and execution with near military precision. All routes and potential end destinations were planned around the vital necessity of restrooms and time and distance between them. The CG constantly monitoring traffic conditions, modifying driving techniques to allow for most expedient emergency restroom access. Pre-trip calculations include plastic seat covers, emergency chains of clothes, arf buckets, and assorted cleanup supplies. Be aware nearly all aspects of the C. diff sufferer's daily life will need to be examined, preparations investigated, and a surprisingly long list of lifestyle modifications and adaptations undertaken. While remaining afflicted, nearly every aspect of the patient's life activities will unfortunately be affected. And now I wish to thank you all for your kind attention and wish you all continued health and happiness and may all your endeavors be successful. Dave, thank you so much for that really powerful discussion. Um, your strength and courage is admirable to share that powerful story with us. You know, it's people like you that motivate so many providers to optimize our management of this infection and improve our outcomes and attend conferences just like this so we can learn from you, with you, 
and hopefully help you as we move forward. Dr. Katerina Onetto is a clinical instructor of medicine at the New York University, Langone in New York City, and she's here to tease this out for us with her discussion, is the C. diff how IBS and IBD complicate the diagnosis and management of patients with C. difficile infection. Katerina, thank you so much for being here. All right, wonderful. Thank you for having me. And of course, thanks the foundation, our chair today, Paul Foyerstedt. And uh, Dr. Kana's talk is quite hard to follow. I hope, I think the sound is okay because I'm told that if there are any issues with sound, an owl will fly down my chimney and start screaming at me. So I'm hoping that the sound is okay. So the topic of today is, is this C. difficile? So how IBS, bowel syndrome, and IBD complicate the diagnosis and the management of CDI. Uh, that's the topic of today. So we're really talking about something that's very clinical, and this is just how we want to, in the day-to-day -day practice frame, how we're thinking about all these patients. What is IBS? I think we'll know it's a chronic condition, very common. There are really two components. One of them is pain. The other one is an abnormality in bowel habit. And that abnormality can go in two directions, diarrhea or constipation. Sometimes it can also be mixed. It can be alternating diarrhea and constipation. And um, the, there's no uh, abnormalities in labs, imaging, or endoscopy. So even though it's not a term that anybody really loves to use, but it's pretty much considered a diagnosis. I don't want to say it's a diagnosis exclusion, but we don't have a great positive test to confirm this diagnosis, mostly a clinical diagnosis. Epidemiology, what I sometimes tell my patients is it's just so common just from sitting in the waiting room of a Manhattan private dog, your most likely diagnosis is IBS. 15% of the population in the United States is affected, and this affects actually more women than men. So very, very common. And the pathophysiology, you can see here, is sort of a multifactorial pathophysiology. There may be mechanisms that are more predominant in one patient versus another because it is a heterogeneous condition. Um, and like one of my teachers in medical school once said, when we have a lot of causes of something, it probably means that we don't really know the cause. So it's multifactorial motility playing a role. Maybe there's a component, or probably there's a component of visceral hypersensitivity, immune activation, and microbial imbalance. And so there's a role of the gut microbiota, and we've known that for some time. Um, a lot of these patients have a decreased microbial diversity, but there's no real microbial signature of these patients. It's not like we can do a stool test and determine that they must have IBS. Uh, abundance, having too many bacteria in the small intestine, seems to play a role, at least in a subset of patients who have IBS symptoms. And we also know, just to further confirm the role of the gut microbiota here, it, that a lot of patients who have IBS do benefit from the use of antibiotics. In fact, there's one antibiotic that's indicated for the treatment of IBS symptoms. Sometimes patients have very clearly post-infectious IBS. We know there was an infection. It could be C. difficile. It could be some other infection. But the onset is sudden, as opposed to a patient who says, I've always had a sense of timing that these are patients who will say, I was totally fine until I traveled to X or until I had this particular episode of infectious gastroenteritis, and that sort of points us more in the direction of post-infectious um, post IBS. In the case of CDI, and here the, what we've learned from actually Dr. Kana, who just presented so nicely, uh, we know that C. diff is not, um, is, is, is similar to other infections in the sense that a lot of patients, maybe more, 20 to 25 percent of patients who have had um, C. difficile colitis develop post-infectious IBS. 
It's mostly of the diarrhea predominant type or the mixed type, not so much the constipation predominant type. And there's some risk factors. A high BMI is a risk factor. And also, just like with other infections, the longer the duration of that episode of infectious gastroenteritis, the more likely it is that the patient will develop post-infectious IBS. So this presents a diagnostic challenge. The symptoms are very similar, and we have limitations in stool testing, as has been discussed so far, and it will be, continue to be discussed because we don't have a perfect test for C. difficile. Unfortunately, we have a test that's too sensitive, another one that's too specific, that, that's uh, not, not uh, I should say one is very sensitive and not specific enough, and the other test is the opposite. And that presents some um, challenges when it comes to diagnosing these patients. When a patient has had, and we deal with this sometimes even in the global support network, that, um, that's a conversation we have with patients once a month with Dr. Poyerstad, um, supported by the CDF Foundation. When we have these conversations with patients, what happens very frequently is if somebody has had C. difficile in the past, they will tend to attribute further gastrointestinal symptoms to a recurrence, and they're always concerned about that, that possibility. So we have to really not just use testing, but also use our clinical judgment here. So sometimes patients do self, how is the self-diagnosis coming, says the husband to the wife, and the wife is making her own, her own diagnosis. It's something that we see, of course, is just uh, part of what we deal with nowadays, but patients do need a little bit of of help making that, uh, that call uh, before pulling the trigger and start taking whatever vancomycin they have from their last episode of C. difficile. Um, so it does present also a management challenge. Patients who have had C. difficile in the past have to, um, they have to have a conversation with their doctor and they need reassurance a lot of times to know that not every episode of diarrhea corresponds to a recurrence, that this is somewhat expected, it's not uncommon to have um, gastrointestinal symptoms, IBS type of symptoms after having had CDI. And the treatment of post-infectious IBS in patients who have had C. diff is not really all that different from the treatment of patients who have IBS from another cause, but we try different things. We try diet, fiber, sometimes we use uh, antispasmodics, neuromodulators are very useful, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, and I put here rifaximin at the end with a question mark, which is something that makes uh, some of us somewhat nervous because it's using an antibiotic in a patient that already has had C. difficile in the past. But rifaximin, I've used it in the past for IBS, uh, post-infectious IBS in patients with C. difficile who have had C. difficile. And, uh, you know, knock on wood, I haven't had a problem. We know that the risk is a lot lower than with uh, most other antibiotics that, that we use. And uh, that, in fact, Zyfaxin Rifaxin can be used as a chaser to another treatment, as even recommended in the latest ACG uh, guidelines. The summary uh, of this part of my talk is not all diarrhea after CDI is a recurrence. Manage expectations with the patient. Give reassurance and offer treatment options. Um, sometimes, a lot of times, this will resolve over the month uh, following the infection, but sometimes there's, there's some level of chronicity of this. What about IBD? This is very different, inflammatory bowel disease. So there are two types of inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. These are chronic, immune-mediated inflammatory disorders affecting the GI tract. And the symptoms uh, can affect just the GI tract, abdominal pain, rectal bleeding, um, diarrhea. 
can also be systemic, like fatigue, for example, and also inflammatory bowel disease can have extra intestinal manifestations, affecting primarily three systems, joints, skin, and the eyes. That's, that's the condition. Pathogenesis is also quite unclear. There seems to be a genetic predisposition, an immune activation, and also the gut microbiota seems to play a role. And speaking about that, sometimes when it comes to IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, and C. diff, um, there's a little bit of a question as to whether the patient who has IBD gets worse, they have a flare-up because of C. diff, or the other way around, and so which one is making which worse, but clearly these, these are two conditions that don't, don't help each other. So this egg is, as the egg is telling the chicken here, well, let's stop arguing. We're both here now. So this is the way we have to deal with, with patients who suffer from both. And these patients are a little bit different. So people who have inflammatory bowel disease have, uh, to begin with, a higher risk of developing C. difficile. Uh, also, they have more community-acquired um, C. difficile. They tend to be younger on average. And they have a higher recurrence rate. So that's something worth uh, considering when we're uh, treating these patients and a higher mortality. So the, again, we have another diagnostic challenge here. Is this an IBD flare or is this CDI? And whenever a patient has an IBD flare, we should be uh, testing for CDI early on. Uh, symptoms we know overlap uh, because of a change in bowel habit and there's sometimes abdominal pain. And testing, of course, there are some limitations to what we can do with testing. And I put this cartoon here. It's interpret your own test results day to day. So sometimes I've tried to play this game with my patients, but it has not really worked out very well. Uh, but it, it is difficult. It is tricky. And we have a very low threshold for treating patients who will have, say, a positive uh, PCR, even if they might be just colonized. Um, but that's at least in, in my practice, I tend to have a low threshold for treating, even if I don't know for sure uh, what role CDF is playing in the inflammatory bowel disease flare-up. What's the treatment? Similarly to the way we treat any patient who has C. difficile, fidaxomycin and vancomycin are the two preferred antibiotics. And one should probably consider longer course of antibiotics. Uh, there is some data coming from the University of Chicago, for example, suggesting that patients who have a longer course of antibiotics, they compare 10 to 14 days versus 21 to 42 days. And clearly, patients who have received, and this is vancomycin, for 21 to 42 days had a lower rate of recurrence. One should also consider bezlituximab, which has been discussed before here, and um, microbiome restoration therapy, which we thought some, a couple of years ago that there, there could be a risk of flare-up uh, in patients who have inflammatory bowel disease, but now we know that it's overall safe. There is the potential for to, that the inflammatory bowel disease may get somewhat worse, but it's not a common occurrence at all. And also, there are patients where, where things do get better. So it is something worth considering when treating patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And so the summary of this part would be patients with IBD flare, just consider C. diff early on, treat early, and think of ways, this is probably the most important part, think of ways to reduce the chance of recurrence. And this is my Final little um, little painting here is Marc Chagall, and it's called this painting is called La Vie, Life. And I like it because it's sort of complicated, like life, um, like the overlap of C. difficile with other conditions. Thank you, Katerina. Thank you so much. It's a beautiful painting, and you're right. It's it, it's one of those things. The more you ask, the worse it gets. But you provided a nice overview and simplified things in an understandable way. 
that we can all kind of digest and apply to our clinical practices or as patients can understand to have some dialogue with, with their providers. I am delighted to introduce Dr. Nicola Petrosillo. Dr. Petrosillo is coming to us from one of my favorite cities, Rome. Dr. Petrosillo is the Head of Infection Control and Infectious Disease Service at the University Hospital Campus Biomedico in Rome. Dr. Petrosillo, thank you so much for participating today. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Paul. And uh, thanks to CD Foundation, uh, to Nancy. Uh, I hope that my microphone works. Uh, please give me a feedback. Uh, yes, it's, it's okay. Your microphone is excellent, Dr. Petrosello. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. My topic uh, is uh, very hot, the burden of Clostridioide difficile infection in the COVID-19 era. And uh, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, repre may represent a risk for uh, C. diff infection because of uh, the derangement of the innate and uh, adaptive immune response due to, to the virus replication and also for the damage to the host gastrointestinal barrier done by the, this virus and uh, thirdly for the detrimental effect to the gut microbiome uh, due to the uh, use and the overuse of antimicrobials that we have seen during the COVID-19 uh, uh, epidemic uh, at home and in the hospital setting and uh, uh, lastly because uh, CD, CDI diagnosis during uh, this uh, pandemic may be delayed in COVID-19 patients because uh, diarrhea is often uh, attributed to uh, SARS-CoV-2 and uh, testing uh, is for CDF was not performed. Um, the, moreover, elderly, uh, elderly who survived COVID-19 have more changes uh, to be exposed to CDF, uh, CDF because of antibiotics, because of more hospitalization. Uh, uh, this represents a higher risk of exposure to CDF and, uh, and uh, elderly who survive may have a gastrointestinal damage because the gastrointestinal tract expresses uh, uh, H2 and uh, TMPR-SS2. Um, and uh, the situation regarding uh, uh, long-term care facilities is extremely worrisome, uh, uh, at least in my, in my country, but also in several countries, uh, as the burden of CDI is far from being determined in these settings, that are scant in several countries. Uh, um, transfer of elderly between hospitals and long-term care facilities increases during uh, a pandemic might, be, might facilitate acquisition and diffusion spread of, uh, of uh, CDI. Um, uh, but the question is, should we be worried about uh, CDF during the, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic? Uh, we, uh, during this uh, pandemic, we have seen a uh, overuse of uh, antibiotics. Uh, we have seen that um, the most severe patients were elderly than, uh, older than 65 years. Uh, uh, with longer hospital stay, with use of PPI, with comorbidities, chemotherapy, uh, chronic kidney diseases, feeding tubes, uh, or uh, they are 
all factors for uh, developing uh, C. diff infection. Uh, and both infection, uh, COVID-19 and C. diff present similar digestive manifestations including diarrhea, nausea, vomiting and uh, abdominal pain. Uh, the, since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, some cases of CDI in COVID-19 patients uh, were described. This is the case of this report uh, in, uh, in, the early, in March, April 2020. Uh, and some studies uh, reported no differences in the standardized infection rate uh, of CDI between the before and during COVID-19 uh, COVID epidemic. Uh, however, the same authors reported a decrease of CD testing because diarrhea in COVID patients was often attributed to, uh, to coronavirus. And they mentioned that our data underscore the continued incidence of hospital onset CDI in, uh, in hospitals. Um, in uh, the, large, the, the largest study on uh, uh, CDI burden uh, in uh, COVID-19 patients uh, that was uh, carried out in Italy, uh, we, we uh, observed uh, 8,400 COVID-19 patients admitted to eight Italian hospitals. Uh, we evidenced an incidence rate of CDI similar to that observed before the COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, with uh, the uh, independent risk factors represented by previous hospitalization, previous steroid administration and uh, antibiotics again during the stay. This is the, the, the table with the, the, the multivariable analysis. Uh, also, the, the burden of uh, C. diff uh, infection has been assessed uh, in a systematic review and uh, a meta-analysis uh, uh, that uh, is going to be published, uh, assessing the incidence and the prevalence uh, of uh, C. diff uh, CD, CD, uh, infection in, uh, during COVID-19 pandemic in COVID-19 uh, patients. In this analysis, the majority of uh, studies uh, reported uh, a decrease in CDI occurrence in COVID-19 patients or no significant differences between uh, the two periods. Um, and this is uh, represented in this, uh, this, uh, this meta-analysis uh, with the comparison of the pre and uh, period during uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, but what about uh, CDI occurrence uh, in non-COVID-19 patients in the COVID-19 era in the, in the hospital, mainly in the hospital setting? Early studies uh, reported uh, a decrease uh, of uh, CDI in uh, infection in uh, uh, patients in the hospital setting, uh, even though the, there was an increase of uh, hospital stays during, the, during the, 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 the period of the pandemic of uh, COVID-19. But uh, in, this studies, in this study, the authors reported also a strict bundle of intervention with precaution barrier 
and the training, uh, personal protective equipment, uh, fashion location, isolation, precaution, and more. Uh, patient environment, rooms, common areas, and transit areas, what to do, cleaning staff, uh, uh, chlor chlorination, training enforcement for uh, cleaning staff, sanitary material, health worker environment, patient movement, it is very important to limit the transfer to the essential for patients, limiting visit, West, improving waste management and improving also and hygiene. Uh, recently, uh, data from uh, United States on uh, healthcare associated infection during uh, COVID-19 have, uh, have been published. Uh, the national CDI, the national US CDI uh, standardized infection rate is steadily declined in, uh, in, uh, in the 2019 and remained stable uh, at 0.52 for each quarter in 2020. And this is very interesting because uh, we, uh, during the, the, the COVID-19 period, we see that there was uh, an increase in some healthcare associated infection in uh, many countries, even in, uh, in Italy, in Europe, uh, uh, including uh, uh, central line associated bloodstream infection, uh, urinary tract infection, ventilatory uh, associated pneumonia, uh, less surgical site infection because there were less intervention, uh, but uh, uh, the uh, more uh, MRSA bacteremia uh, due to uh, several factors that uh, can explain that uh, the difficulty to maintain uh, a, a reduction of patient to patient transmission by the use by the the, the use of gloves for uh, without uh, changing gloves and the laboratory identified the CDI decreased in uh, all the period uh, during 2020 in uh, this uh, report from uh, United States. Okay, in, uh, in another study, in another study in uh, United States uh, covering uh, uh, 148 hospitals, uh, uh, CDI relative rates were not associated uh, with increased monthly rates of COVID-19 discharges. So this is also very interesting uh, because uh, uh, this hospital where uh, are healthcare affiliated hospital uh, studying uh, uh, continuously the healthcare associated infection. Uh, in this study, CDI rates were stable or decreased during uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Barrier precautions and uh, increased uh, uh, training might have led to a uh, uh, reduction of CDI. We cannot rule out the, that the rates of CDI might lag due to changes in antimicrobial stewardship uh, or changes in uh, testing practices. And this is another important point to be, to be explored. Uh, because uh, in, uh, in this study, incidence of CDI did not change over time, but there were less CDI tests. What does it mean? Less CDI testing and no change of uh, uh, the rate, the incidence of CDI. Uh, it means that uh, uh, probably we are 
underestimating uh, CDI incidents during COVID uh, pandemic uh, because we have uh, 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 at least in this study high risk for CDI antibiotic use that increased less CDI testing but the incidents remained stable. Therefore, we should uh, we should uh, study better factors that have uh, a positive or a negative uh, uh, role in the findings from clinical studies because uh, uh, if we make less tests, we, we, we can underestimate the burden of CDI. Uh, but if we have less movement, uh, less admission, uh, less surgery, uh, we, we obviously we will have less uh, CDI, CD infection. Hygiene, isolation, disinfection, barrier measures, uh, when they uh, are improving, there is, uh, of course, less CDI infection. So it's very important that the infection prevention control measures will be maintained. Training, less training, uh, and uh, the use of antibiotics and less uh, uh, attention to antimicrobial stewardship program that we have seen during the COVID-19 pandemic in several hospitals because of the healthcare workers were more uh, uh, um, more, they took more care about the 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 the, the, the the medication, the use, the, the care for patients, less for uh, antimicrobial stewardship. This means more CDI burden uh, in the hospital setting. Uh, as take-home messages, uh, uh, COVID-19 patients have uh, several CDI risks, including uh, overuse of antibiotics, older ages, invasive procedures, and uh, parenteral feeding and comorbidities. However, CDI incidence is lower than expected. Is this the effect of barrier, isolation measures, or less tests? Among non-COVID-19 patients, CDI incidence is lower than that observed in past years. Is this, again, the effect of the barrier, isolation measures, less tests, less admissions, less surgery? As a matter of fact, an effect of infection prevention and control measures mainly isolation, barrier precaution, disinfection and washing and the reduced uh, patient's movement is likely. And uh, I think that is uh, the most likely explanation for, uh, for this phenomenon. And when the dust generated by COVID-19 will settle, this uh, remain uh, the main lesson because, uh, uh, in my opinion, uh, uh, infection prevention and control uh, uh, measures could work, uh, and I thank you for your attention. Dr. Petrosillo, thank you so much. That was a really insightful talk. I can tell you here in the States at our national conferences, ID Week, as well as the American College of Gastroenterology Conference from last week, there have been a number of uh, retrospective studies, one presented at ID Week, three presenting at the ACG conference, and, you know, they showed a kind of level incidence. Um, but I think that the, this, of course, were retrospective studies, and I think that the factors that you raised really bear thought, which is people were so focused on treating the COVID-19, less, uh, less tests checked, therefore less positive tests, um, and perhaps diagnoses were, were in fact missed. Um, so you're right. I think once the dust settles and we can go back and look at what went wrong and why, um, we'll probably gain more information on the, uh, the incidence of C. difficile within these populations. Thank you for tuning in this week for C. diff, spores, and more. 
Be sure to join your host, Nancy Kerala, again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 1 p.m. Eastern Time, for another edition of our program on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. None of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together.